Section 9 of The Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 And Others. My Film Scenario. Specially written for Economic Pictures Limited, whose manager has had the good fortune to pick up for a mere song, or to be more accurate for a few notes several thousand miles of discarded cinema films from a bankrupt company. The films comprise the well-known Bear's Ark Basil, The Pride of the Ranch, two miles long, The Foiler Foiled, one mile, three furlongs, two rods, poles, or perches, The Blood-Stained Vest, fragment, eighteen inches, a Maniac's Revenge, 5,000 feet, The Life of the Common Mosquito, Six Legs, and so forth. Twenty-five years before our film opens, Andrew Bellingham, a young man just about to enter his father's business, was spending a holiday in a little fishing village in Cornwall. The daughter of the sheep farmer with whom he lodged was a girl of singular beauty, and Andrew's youthful blood was quickly stirred to admiration. Carried away by his passion for her, he manager. Just a reminder that Mr. T.P. O'Connor has to pass this before it can be produced. He married her manager. Oh, I beg pardon. And for some weeks they lived happily together. One day, he informed Jesse that he would have to go back to his work in London, and that it might be a year or more before he could acknowledge her openly as his wife to his rich and proud parents. Jesse was prostrated with grief, and late that afternoon her hat and fringe net were discovered by the edge of the waters. Realizing at once that she must have drowned herself in her distress, Andrew took an affecting farewell of her father and the sheep, and returned to London. A year later, he married a distant cousin, and soon rose to a condition of prosperity. At the time our film begins to unwind, he was respected by everybody in the city, a widower, and the father of a beautiful girl of eighteen, called Hyacinth. Manager, now we're off. What do we start with? 1. On the sunny side of Fenchurch Street, manager. Ah, then I suppose we'd better keep back the rescue from the alligator and the plunge down Niagara in a barrel. Andrew Bellingham was dozing in his office. Suddenly he awoke to find a strange man standing over him. Who are you? asked Mr. Bellingham. What do you want? "'My name is Jasper,' was the answer, "'and I have some information to give you.' He bent down and hissed, "'Your first wife is still alive.' Andrew started up in obvious horror. "'My daughter,' he gasped, "'my little Hyacinth, she must never know.' "'Listen, your wife is in Spain, manager. "'Don't waste her. "'Make it somewhere where there are sharks.' Author, it's all right, she's dead, really. And she will not trouble you. Give me a thousand pounds, and you shall have these. 
and he held out a packet containing the marriage certificate, a photograph of Jessie's father dipping a sheep, a receipted bill for a pair of white gloves, size nine and a half, two letters signed Your Own Loving Little Andy Pandy, and a peppermint with Jess on it in pink. Once these are locked up in your safe, no one need ever know that you were married in Cornwall twenty-five years ago. Without a moment's hesitation, Mr. Bellingham took a handful of banknotes from his pocketbook, and the exchange was made. At all costs, he must preserve his little hyacinth from shame. Now she need never know. With a forced smile, he bowed Jasper out, placed the packet in his safe, and returned to his desk. But his mysterious visitor was not done with yet. As soon as the door had closed behind him, Jasper re-entered softly, drugged Andrew hastily, and took possession again of the compromising documents. By the time Mr. Bellingham had regained his senses, the thief was away. A hue and cry was raised, Police whistles were blown, and Richard Harrington, Mr. Bellingham's private secretary, was smartly arrested. At the trial, things looked black against Richard. He was poor, and he was in love with Hyacinth. The chain of evidence was complete. In spite of his impassioned protest from the dock, in spite of Hyacinth's dramatic swoon in front of the solicitor's table, the judge, with great solemnity, passed sentence of twenty years' penal servitude. A loud, hear, hear, from the gallery, rang through the court, and, looking up, Mr. Bellingham caught the sardonic eye of the mysterious Jasper. 2. Richard had been in prison a month before the opportunity for his escape occurred. For a month he had been hewing stone in Portland, black despair at his heart. Then, like lightning, he saw his chance and took it. The warders were off guard for a moment. Hastily lifting his pickaxe, manager, sorry, but it's a spade in the only prison film we've got. Hastily borrowing a spade from a comrade who was digging potatoes, he struck several of his jailers down, and, dodging the shots of others who hurried to the scene, he climbed the prison wall and dashed for freedom. Reaching Weymouth at nightfall, he made his way to the house which Hyacinth had taken in order to be near him, and, suitably disguised, travelled up to London with her in the powerful motor which she had kept ready. "'At last, my love, we are together,' he murmured, as they neared Wimbledon. But he had spoken a moment too soon. An aeroplane swooped down upon them, and Hyacinth was snatched from his arms and disappeared with her captors into the clouds. 3. Richard's first act on arriving in London was to go to Mr. Bellingham's house. Andrew was out, but a note lying on his study carpet meet me at the old windmill to-night gave him a clue on receipt of this note andrew had gone to the rendezvous 
and it was no surprise to him when Jasper stepped out and offered to sell him a packet containing a marriage certificate, a photograph of an old gentleman dipping a sheep, a peppermint lozenge with Jess on it, and various other documents for a thousand pounds. "'You villain!' cried Andrew. "'Even at the trial I suspected you.' And he rushed at him fiercely. A desperate struggle ensued, breaking free for a moment from the vice-like grip of the other, Jasper leapt with the spring of a panther at one of the sails of the windmill as it came round, and was whirled upwards with the spring of another panther. Andrew leapt on to the next sail, and was whirled after him. At that moment the wind dropped, and the combatants were suspended in mid-air. It was upon this terrible scene that Richard arrived. Already a crowd was collecting, and, though at present it did not seem greatly alarmed, feeling convinced that it was only assisting at another cinematograph rehearsal, its suspicions might at any moment be aroused. With a shout he dashed into the mill. Seeing him coming, Jasper dropped his revolver and slid down the sail into the window, in a moment he reappeared at the door of the mill with Hyacinth under his arm. "'Stop him!' cried Richard from underneath a sack of flour. It was no good. Jasper had leapt with his fair burden upon the back of his mustang, and was gone. The usual pursuit followed. 4. It was the gala night at the Royal Circus. Ricardo Harringtoni, the wonderful new acrobat of whom everybody was talking, stood high above the crowd on his platform. His marvellous performance on the swinging horizontal bar was about to begin. Richard Harrington, for it was he, was troubled. Since he had entered on his new profession, as a disguise from the police who were still searching for him, he had had a vague suspicion that the lion-tamer was dogging him. Who was the lion-tamer? Could it be Jasper? At that moment the band struck up, and Richard leapt lightly onto the swinging bar. With a movement full of grace, he let go of the bar and swung onto the opposite platform. And then, even as he was in mid-air, he realized what was happening. Jasper had let the lion loose. It was waiting for him. With a gasping cry, Ricardo Harringtoni fainted. 5. When he recovered consciousness, Richard found himself on the S.S. Borassic, which was forging her way through the manager, somewhere where there are sharks, the Indian Ocean. Mr. Bellingham was bathing his forehead with cooling drinks. "'Forgive me, my boy,' said Mr. Bellingham, "'for the wrong I did you. It was Jasper who stole the compromising documents. He refuses to give them back unless I let him marry Hyacinth. What can I do?' "'Where is she?' asked Richard. "'Hidden away, no one knows where, 
Find her, get back the documents for me, and she is yours. At that moment a terrible cry rang through the ship. Man overboard! Pushing over Mr. Bellingham and running on deck, Richard saw that a woman and her baby were battling for life in the shark-infested waters. In an instant he had plunged in and rescued them. As they were dragged together up the ship's side, he heard her murmur, "'Is little Jasper safe?' "'Jasper!' cried Richard. "'Yes, called after his daddy.' "'Where is daddy now?' asked Richard hoarsely. "'In America.' "'Can't you see the likeness?' whispered Richard to Mr. Bellingham. "'It must be. The villain is married to another.' but now I will pursue him and get back the papers. And he left the boat at the next port and boarded one for America. The search through North and South America for Jasper was protracted, accompanied sometimes by a band of cowboys, sometimes by a tribe of Indians, Richard scoured the continent for his enemy. There were hours when he would rest a while, and amuse himself by watching the antics of the common mosquito manager. Good. Or he would lie at full length and gaze at a bud bursting into flower manager. Excellent. Then he would leap onto his steed and pursue the trail relentlessly once more. One night he was dozing by his campfire, when he was awakened roughly by a strong arm around his neck and Jasper's hot breath in his ear. "'At last!' cried Jasper, and, knocking Richard heavily on the head with a boot, he picked up his unconscious enemy and carried him to a tributary of the Amazon noted for its alligators. Once there, he tied him to a post in midstream and rode hastily off to the nearest town, where he spent the evening witnessing the first half of The Merchant of Venice. Manager. Splendid. But in the morning a surprise awaited him. As he was proceeding along the top of a lonely cliff, he was confronted suddenly by the enemy whom he had thought to kill. Richard, he cried, escaped again. Now, Jasper, I have you. With a triumphant cry, they rushed at each other. A terrible contest ensued, and then Jasper, with one blow of his palm, hurled his adversary over the precipice. 6. How many times the two made an end of each other after this, the pictures will show. Sometimes Jasper sealed Richard in a barrel and pushed him over Niagara. Sometimes Richard tied Jasper to a stake and set light to him. Sometimes they would both fall out of a balloon together. But the day of reckoning was at hand. Manager, we've only got the burning house and the 1913 derby left. Author, write. It is the evening of the 3rd of June. A cry rends the air suddenly, whistles are blowing, there is a rattling of horses' hoofs. Fire! Fire! Richard, who was passing Soho Square at the time, heard the cry, and dashed into the burning house. 
in a room full of smoke he perceived a cowering woman, Hyacinth. To pick her up was the work of a moment, but how shall he save her? Stay, the telegraph wire. His training at the royal circus stood him in good stead. Treading lightly on the swaying wire, he carried Hyacinth across to the house opposite. At last, my love, he breathed. But the papers, she cried, you must get them, or father will not let you marry me. Once more he treads the rocking wire. Once more he recrosses with the papers on his back. Then the house behind him crumbles to the ground with the wicked jasper in its ruins. Excellent, said Mr. Bellingham at dinner that evening. Not only are the papers here, but a full confession by Jasper. My first wife was drowned all the time. He stole the documents from her father. Richard, my boy, when the Home Secretary knows everything, he will give you a free pardon, and then you can marry my daughter. At these words, Hyacinth and Richard were locked in a close embrace. On the next day, they all went to Derby together. THE FATAL GIFT People say to me sometimes, Oh, you know Woolman, don't you? I acknowledge that I do, and, after the silence that always ensues, I add, If you want to say anything against him, please go on. You can almost hear the sigh of relief that goes up, I thought he was a friend of yours, they say cheerfully, but, of course, if... And then they begin. I think it is time I explained my supposed friendship for Ernest Marrowby Woolman, confound him. The affair began in a taxicab two years ago. Andrew had been dining with me that night, and we walked out to the cab rank together. I told the driver where to go, and Andrew stepped in, waved good-bye to me from the window, and sat down suddenly upon something hard. He drew it from beneath him, and found it was an extremely massive and quite new silver cigar case. He put it in his pocket with the intention of giving it to the driver when he got out, but quite naturally forgot. Next morning he found it on his dressing-table. So he put it in his pocket again, meaning to leave it at Scotland Yard on his way to the city. Next morning it was on his dressing-table again. This went on for some days. After a week or so, Andrew saw that it was hopeless to try to get a cigar case back to Scotland Yard in this casual sort of way. It must be taken there deliberately by somebody who had a morning to spare, and was willing to devote it to this special purpose. He placed the case, therefore, prominently on a small table in the dining-room to await the occasion, calling also the attention of his family to it as an excuse for an outing when they were not otherwise engaged. At times he used to say, "'I must really take that cigar-case to Scotland Yard to-morrow.' At other times he would say, "'Somebody must really take that cigar-case to Scotland Yard to-day.' And so the weeks rolled on. It was about a year later that I first got mixed up with the thing. 
i must have dined with andrews several times without noticing the cigar-case but on this occasion it caught my eye as we wandered out to join the ladies and i picked it up carelessly well not exactly carelessly it was too heavy for that why didn't you tell me i said that you had stood for parliament and that your supporters had consoled you with a large piece of plate hallo they've put the wrong initials on it how unbusinesslike oh that said andrew is it still there why not it's quite a solid little table but you haven't explained why your constituents who must have seen your name on hundreds of posters thought your initials were e m w andrew explained then it isn't yours at all i said in amazement of course not but my dear man this is theft stealing by finding they call it you could get i looked at him almost with admiration you could get two years for this and i weighed the cigar case in my hand i believe you're the only one of my friends who could be certain of two years i went on musingly let's see there's nonsense said andrew uneasily but still perhaps i'd better take it back to scotland yard to-morrow and tell them you've kept it for a year they'd run you in at once no what you want to do is get rid of it without their knowledge but how that's the question you can't give it away because of the initials it's easy enough i can leave it in another cab or drop it in the river andrew andrew i cried you're determined to go to prison don't you know from all the humorous articles you've ever read that if you try to lose anything then you never can it's one of the stock remarks one makes to women in the endeavour to keep them amused no you must think of some more subtle way of disposing of it i'll pretend it's yours said andrew more subtly and he placed it in my pocket no you don't i said but i tell you what i will do i'll take it for a week and see if i can get rid of it if i can't i shall give it you back and wash my hands of the whole business except of course for the monthly letter or whatever it is they allow you at the scrubs you may still count on me for that and then the extraordinary thing happened the next morning i received a letter from a stranger asking for some simple information which i could have given him on a postcard and so i should have done or possibly i am afraid have forgotten to answer at all but for the way that the letter ended up yours very truly ernest m woolman the magic initials it was a chance not to be missed i wrote enthusiastically back and asked him to lunch he came i gave him all the information he wanted and more whether he was a pleasant sort of person or not i hardly noticed i was so very pleasant myself he returned my enthusiasm he asked me to dine with him in the following week a little party at the savoy his birthday you know i accepted gladly i rolled up at the party with my little present a massive silver cigar-case suitably engraved 
So there you are. He clings to me. He seems to have formed the absurd idea that I am fond of him. A few months after that evening at the Savoy, he was married. I was invited to the wedding, confound him. Of course, I had to live up to my birthday present. The least I could do was an enormous silver cigar box, not engraved, which bound me to him still more strongly. By that time I realized that I hated him. He was pushing, familiar, everything that I disliked. All my friends wondered how I had become so intimate with him. Well, now they know. And the original E.M.W., if he has the sense to read this, also knows. If he cares to prosecute Ernest Merrowby Woolman for being in possession of stolen goods, I shall be glad to give him any information. Woolman is generally to be found leaving my rooms at about 6.30 in the evening, and a smart detective could easily nab him as he steps out. A Midsummer Madness The girl who shared Herbert's meringue at dinner, a brittle one which exploded just as he was getting into it, was kind and tactful. It doesn't matter a bit, she said, removing fragments of shell from her lap, and, to put him at his ease again, went on, Are you interested in little problems at all? Herbert, who would have been interested even in a photograph album just then, emerged from his apologies and swore that he was. We're all wondering about one which father saw in a paper. I do wish you could solve it for us. It goes like this. And she proceeded to explain it. Herbert decided that the small piece of meringue, still in her hair, was not worth mentioning, and he listened to her with interest. On the next morning, I happened to drop in at Herbert's office, and that, in short, is how I was entangled in the business. Look here, said Herbert. You used to be mathematical. Here's something for you. Let the dead past bury its dead, I implored. I am now quite respectable. It goes like this, he said, ignoring my appeal. He then gave me the problem, which I hand on to you. A subaltern, riding at the rear of a column of soldiers, trotted up to the captain in front and challenged him to a game of billiards for half a crown a side, the loser to pay for the table. Having lost, he played another hundred, double or quits, and then rode back, the column by this time having travelled twice its own length, and a distance equal to the distance it would have travelled if it had been going in the other direction. What was the captain's name? Perhaps I have not got it quite right, for I have had an eventful week since then. Or perhaps Herbert didn't get it quite right, or perhaps the girl with the meringue in her hair didn't get it quite right, but anyhow that was the idea of it. And the answer, said Herbert, ought to be four cows, but I keep on making it eight and tuppence. Just have a shot at it, there's a good fellow. I promised the girl, you know. I sat down, worked it out hastily on the back of an envelope, and made it a yard and a half. No, said Herbert, I know it's four cows, but I can't get it. 
Sorry, I said how stupid of me. I left out the table money. I did it hastily again, and made it three minutes twenty-five seconds. It is difficult, isn't it? said Herbert. I thought, as you used to be mathematical, and as I'd promised the girl... Wait a moment, I said, still busy with my envelope. I forgot the subaltern. Ah, that's right. The answer is a hundred and twenty-five men. No, that's wrong. I never doubled the half-crown. Er, oh, look here, Herbert. I'm rather busy this morning. I'll send it to you. Right, said Herbert. I know I can depend on you, because you're mathematical. He opened the door for me. I had meant to do a very important piece of work that day, but I couldn't get my mind off Herbert's wretched problem. Happening to see Carrie at tea-time, I mentioned it to him. Ah, said Carrie profoundly, hmm, have you tried it with an X? Of course. Yes, it looks as though it wants a bit of an X somewhere. You stick to it with an X and you ought to do it. Let X be the subaltern, that's the way. I say, I didn't know you were interested in problems. Well, because I've got rather a tricky chess problem here I can't do. He produced his pocket chessboard. White mates in four moves. I looked at it carelessly. Black had only left himself with a pawn and a king, while white had a queen and a couple of knights about. Now, I know very little about chess, but I do understand the theory of chess problems. Have you tried letting the queen be taken by Black's pawn, then sacrificing the knights and finally meeting him with the king alone? Yes, said Carrie. Then I was baffled. If one can't solve a chess problem by starting off with the most unlikely-looking thing on the board, one can't solve it at all. However, I copied down the position and said I'd glance at it. At eleven that night I rose from my glance, decided that Herbert's problem was the more immediately pressing, and took it to bed with me. I was lunching with William next day and told him about the subaltern. He dashed at it light-heartedly, and made the answer seventeen. Seventeen what? I said. Well, whatever we're talking about. I think you'll find it seventeen all right. But look here, my son, here's a golf problem for you. A is playing B. At the fifth hole, A falls off the tee into a pond. I forget how it went on. When I got home to dinner, after a hard day with the subaltern, I found a letter from Nora waiting for me. I hear from Mr. Carey, she wrote, that you're keen on problems. Here's one I have cut out of our local paper. Do have a shot at it. The answer ought to be eight miles an hour. Luckily, however, she forgot to enclose the problem. For by this time, what with Herbert's subaltern, Carey's pawn, and a cistern left me by an uncle who was dining with us that night, I had more than enough to distract me. And so the business has gone on. The news that I am preparing a collection of interesting and tricky problems for a new encyclopedia has got out among my friends. Everybody who writes to me tells me of a relation of his 
who has been shearing sheep, or rowing against the stream, or dealing himself four aces. People who come to tea borrow a box of wooden matches, and beg me to remove one match and leave a perfect square. I am asked to do absurd things with pennies. Meanwhile, Herbert has forgotten both the problem and the girl. Three evenings later, he shared his hollandaise sauce with somebody in yellow, as luck would have it, and she changed the subject by wondering if he read Dickens. He is now going manfully through Bleak House, a chapter a night, and when he came to visit me today, he asked if I had ever heard of the man. However, I was not angry with him, for I had just made it come to three cows. It is a cow short, but it is nearer than I have ever been before, and I think I shall leave it at that. Indeed, both the doctor and the nurse say that I had better leave it at that. To the death in the twentieth-century manner. Cauliflower, shrieked Gaspard Volauvent across the little table in the estaminet. His face bristled with rage. Serpent, replied Jacques Rizol, bristling with equal dexterity. The two stout little men glared ferociously at each other. Then Jacques picked up his glass and poured the wine of the country over his friend's head. "'Down, serpent!' he said magnificently. He beckoned to the waiter. "'Another bottle,' he said. "'My friend has drunk all this.' Gaspard removed the wine from his whiskers with the local paper and leant over the table toward Jacques. "'This must be wiped out in blood.' he said slowly. You understand? Perfectly, replied the other. The only question is, whose? Name your weapons, said Gaspard Volauvent grandly. Aeroplanes, replied Jacques Rissol, after a moment's thought. Bah! I cannot fly. Then I win, said Jacques simply. The other looked at him in astonishment. "'What, you fly?' "'No, but I can learn.' "'Then I will learn, too,' said Gaspard, with dignity. "'We meet in six months.' "'Good.' Jacques, pointing to the ceiling, "'say three thousand feet up.' Three thousand four hundred, said Gaspard, "'for the sake of disagreeing. "'After all,' That is for our seconds to arrange. My friend, Epinard, of the Roulant Aerodrome, will act for me. He will also instruct me how to bring serpents to the ground. With the idea of cleansing the sky of cauliflowers, said Gaspard, I shall proceed to the flying ground at Dormancourt. Blanchel, the instructor there, will receive your friend. He bowed and walked out. Details were soon settled. On a date six months ahead, the two combatants would meet 3,200 feet above the little town in which they lived, and fight to the death. In the event of both crashing, the one who crashed last would be deemed the victor, 
It was Gaspard's second who insisted on this clause. Gaspard himself felt that it did not matter greatly. This first month of instruction went by. At the end of it, Jacques Rizol had only one hope. It was that when he crashed, he should crash on some of Gaspard's family. Gaspard had no hope but one consolation. It was that no crash could involve his stomach, which he invariably left behind him as soon as the aeroplane rose. At the end of the second month, Gaspard wrote to Jacques. "'My friend,' he wrote, "'the hatred of you which I nurse in my bosom "'and which fills me with the desire to purge you from the sky "'is in danger of being transferred to my instructor. "'Let us therefore meet and renew our enmity.' "'Jacques Rizol wrote back to Gaspard. "'My enemy,' he wrote, "'there is nobody in the whole of the Roulin aerodrome whom I do not detest with a detestation beside which my hatred for you seems as maudlin adoration. This is notwithstanding the fact that I make the most marvellous progress in the art of flying. It is merely something in their faces which annoys me. Let me therefore see yours again in the hope that it will make me think more kindly of theirs. They met poured wine over each other, and parted. After another month, the need of a further stimulant was felt. They met again, and agreed to insult each other weakly. On the last day of his training, Gaspard wrote seriously to his instructor. "'You see that I make nothing of it,' he said. "'My thoughts are ever with the stomach that I leave behind.' Not once have I been in a position to take control. How, then, can I fight? My friend, I arrange it all. You shall take my place. Is that quite fair to Rissol? asked Blanchet, doubtfully. Do not think that I want you to hurt him. That is not necessary. He will hurt himself. Keep out of his way until he has finished with himself, and then fly back here. It is easy. It seemed the best way, indeed the only way. Gaspard Moulavant could never get to the rendezvous alone, and it would be fatal to his honour if Jacques arrived there and nobody meet him. Reluctantly, Blanchet agreed. At the appointed hour, Gaspard put his head cautiously out of his bedroom window and gazed up into the heavens. He saw two aeroplanes straight above him. At the thought that he might have been in one of them, he shuddered violently. Indeed, he felt so unwell that the need for some slight restorative became pressing. He tripped off to the estaminet. It was empty, save for one table. Gaspard walked towards it, hoping for a little conversation. The occupant lowered the newspaper from in front of his face and looked up. It was too much for Gaspard. Coward! he shrieked. Jacques, who had been going to say the same thing, hastily substituted serpent. I know you, cried Gaspard. You send your instructor up in your place, poltroon. 
Jacques picked up his glass and poured the wine of the country over his friend's head. Down, serpent, he said magnificently. He beckoned to the waiter. Another bottle, he said. My friend has drunk all this. Gaspard removed the wine from his whiskers with Jacques's paper and leant over him. This must be wiped out in blood, he said slowly. Name your weapons. Submarines, said Jacques after a moment's thought. The Handicap of Sex I found myself in the same drawing-room with Anne the other day, so I offered her one of my favorite sandwiches. I hadn't seen her for some time, and there were plenty in the plate. "'If you are coming to talk to me,' she said, "'I think I had better warn you that I am a Bolshevist.' "'Then you won't want a sandwich,' I said gladly, and I withdrew the plate. "'I suppose,' said Anne, "'that what I really want is a vote.' "'Haven't you got one? "'Sorry, I mean, of course you haven't got one.' But it isn't only that. I want to see the whole position of women altered. I want to see... I looked around for her mother. Tell me, I said gently, when did this come over you? In the last few weeks, said Anne, and I don't wonder. I settled down with the sandwiches to listen. Anne first noted symptoms of it at a luncheon party at the beginning of the month. She had asked the young man on her right if she could have some of his salt, and as he passed it to her, he covered up any embarrassment she might be feeling by saying genially, "'Well, and how long is this coal strike going to last?' "'I don't know,' said Anne, truthfully. "'I suppose you're ready for the revolution?' the billiard-room, and all the square bedrooms well-stocked. Anne saw that this was meant humorously, and she laughed. "'I expect we shall be all right,' she said. "'You have to give a coal-party, and invite your friends. Fire nine-twelve. "'What a lovely idea,' said Anne, smiling from sheer habit. "'Mind you come.' She got her face straight again with a jerk, and turned to the solemn old gentleman on her other side. He was ready for her. "'This is a terrible disaster for the country, this cold strike,' he said. "'Isn't it?' said Anne, and feeling that that was inadequate, added, "'Terrible!' "'I don't know what's happening to the country.' Anne crumbled her bread, and, having reviewed a succession of possible replies, each more fatuous than the last, decided to remain silent. "'Everything will be at a standstill directly,' her companion went on. "'Already trade is leaving the country. America—' "'I suppose so,' said Anne gloomily. Once stop the supplies of coal, you see, and you drain the life-blood of the country. Of course, said Anne, and looked very serious. After lunch, an extremely brisk little man took her in hand. Have you been studying this coal-strike question at all? he began. I read the papers, said Anne. 
Ah, but you don't get it there. They don't tell you. They don't tell you. Now, I know a man who is actually in it, and he says, and he knows this for a fact, that from the moment when the first man downed tools, from the very moment when he downed tools, Anne edged away from him nervously, her face had assumed an expression of wild interest, which she was certain couldn't last much longer. Now, take coal at the pit's mouth, he went on, at the pit's mouth. He shook a forefinger at her. At the pit's mouth, and I know this for a fact, the royalties, the royalties are... It's awful, said Anne, I know... She went home feeling a little disturbed. There was something in her mind, a dim sense of foreboding, which kept casting its shadow across her pleasanter thoughts. "'Just as you feel,' she said, "'when you know you've got to go to the dentist.' But they had a big dinner party that evening, and Anne, full of the joy of life, was not going to let anything stand in the way of her enjoyment of it. Her man began on the stairs. Well, he said, what about the cold strike? When are you going to start your coal parties? Fire, ten, two. They say that's going to be the new rage. He smiled reassuringly at her. He was giving the impression that he could have been very, very serious over this terrible business, but that for her sake he was wearing the mask. In the presence of woman, a man must make light of danger. Anne understood then what was troubling her, and as, halfway through dinner, the man on her other side turned to talk to her, she shot an urgent question at him. At any cost, she must know the worst. "'How long will the strike last?' she said earnestly. "'That's just what I was going to ask you,' he said." I fear it may be months, and sighed deeply. I took the last sandwich and put down the plate. And that, said Anne, was three weeks ago. It has been the same ever since, I asked, beginning on a new plate. Every day I'm tired of it. I shrink from every new man I meet. I wait nervously for the word coal feeling that I shall scream when it comes. Oh, I want a vote or something. I don't know what I want, but I hate men. Why should they think that everything they say to us is funny or clever or important? Why should they talk to us as if we were children? Why should they take it for granted that it's our duty to listen always? I rose with dignity. Dash it all. Who had been doing the listening for the last half hour? You are run down, I said. What you want is a tonic. Quite between ourselves, though, I really think. But no, we men must stick together. The Legend of High You 1. In the days of good King Carraway, dead now, poor fellow, but he had a pleasant time while he lasted. 
there lived a certain swineherd commonly called high yu it was the duty of high yu to bring up one hundred and forty-one pigs for his master and this he did with as much enthusiasm as the work permitted but there were times when his profession failed him in the blue days of summer princes and princesses lords and ladies chamberlains and enchanters would ride past him and leave him vaguely dissatisfied with his company so that he would remove the straw from his mouth and gaze after them wondering what it would be like to have as little regard for a swineherd as they but when they were out of sight he would replace the straw in his mouth and fall with great diligence to the counting of his herd and such other duties as are required of the expert pig-tender assuring himself that if a man could not be lively with one hundred and forty-one companions he must indeed be a poor-spirited sort of fellow now there was one little black pig for whom hai yu had a special tenderness just so he often used to think would he have felt toward a brother if this had been granted to him it was not the colour of the little pig nor the curliness of his tail endearing though it was nor even the melting expression in his eyes which warmed the swineherd's breast but the feeling that intellectually this pig was as solitary among the hundred and forty others as high you himself frederick for this was the name which he had given to it shared their food their sleeping apartments much indeed as did high you but he lived or so it seemed to the other an inner life of his own in short frederick was a soulful pig there could be only one reason for this frederick was a prince in disguise some enchanter it was common enough these days annoyed by frederick's father or his uncle or even by frederick himself had turned him into a small black pig until such time as the feeling between them had passed away there was a prince frederick of milvania who had disappeared suddenly probably this was he his complexion was darker now his tail more curly but the royal bearing was unmistakable it was natural then that having little in common with his other hundred and forty charges high yu should find himself drawn into ever closer companionship with frederick they would talk together in the intervals of acorn hunting frederick's share of the conversation limited to humphs unintelligible at first but as the days went on seeming more and more charged with an inner meaning to high yu until at last he could interpret every variation of grunt with which his small black friend responded and indeed it was a pretty sight to see them sitting together on the top of a hill the world at their feet discussing at one time the political situation of milvania at another the latest ballad of the countryside or even in their more hopeful moments planning what they should do when frederick at last was restored to public life two 
Now it chanced that one morning when Frederick and Hayu were arguing together in a friendly matter over the new uniforms of the town guard, to the colours of which Frederick took exception, King Carraway himself passed that way, and, being in a good humour, stood for a moment listening to them. "'Well, well,' he said at last. "'Well, well, well.' In great surprise, Hayu looked up, and then, seeing that it was the king, jumped to his feet and bowed several times. "'Pardon, your majesty,' he stammered. "'I did not see your majesty.' I was, I was talking. To a pig, laughed the king. To his royal highness, Prince Frederick of Milvania, said Hayu proudly. I beg your pardon, said the king. Could I trouble you to say that again? His royal highness, Prince Frederick of Milvania. Yes, that was what it sounded like last time. Frederick? murmured Hayu in his friend's ear. This is his majesty, King Carraway. He lets me call him Frederick, he added to the king. You don't mean to tell me, said his majesty, pointing to the pig, that this is Prince Frederick? It is indeed, sire. Such distressing incidents must often have occurred within your majesty's recollection. They have, yes, "'Dear me, dear me!' "'Humph!' remarked Frederick, feeling it was time that he said something. "'His Royal Highness says that he is very proud to meet so distinguished a monarch as your Majesty.' "'Did he say that?' asked the King, surprised. "'Undoubtedly, your Majesty. "'Very good of him, I'm sure.' "'Humph!' said Frederick again. "'He adds,' explained Hayu, that your majesty's great valour is only excelled by the distinction of your majesty's appearance. Dear me, said the king, I thought he was merely repeating himself. It seems to me very clever of you to understand so exactly what he is saying. Humph, said Frederick, feeling that it was about acorn time. His royal highness is kind enough to say that we are very old friends. "'Yes, of course, that must make a difference. "'One soon picks it up, no doubt. "'But we must not be inhospitable to so distinguished a visitor. "'Certainly he must stay with us at the palace. "'And you had better come along, too, my man, "'for it may well be that without your aid "'some of his royal highness's conversation would escape us. "'Prince Frederick of Milvania, dear me, dear me!' This will be news for Her Royal Highness. So, leaving the rest of the herd to look after itself, as it was quite capable of doing, Frederick and Hayu went to the palace. Now Her Royal Highness, Princess Amaril, was of an age to be married. Many princes had sought her hand, but in vain, for she was as proud as she was beautiful. Indeed, her beauty was so great that those who looked upon it were blinded, as if they had gazed upon the sun at noonday, or so the court poet said, and he would not be likely to exaggerate. Wherefore, Hayu was filled with a great apprehension, as he walked to the palace, 
and Frederick, to whom the matter had been explained, was, it may be presumed, equally stirred within, although outwardly impassive. And, as they went, Hayu murmured to his companion that it was quite all right, for that, in any event, she should not eat them, the which assurance Frederick, no doubt, was particularly glad to receive. Ah, said the king, as they were shown into the royal library, that's right. He turned to the princess, my dear, prepare for a surprise. Yes, father, said Amaril dutifully. This, said his majesty, dramatically throwing out a hand, is a prince in disguise. Which one, father? said Amaril. The small black one, of course, said the king crossly. The other is merely his attendant. Hi, you. What's your name? The swineherd hastened to explain that his majesty, with his majesty's unfailing memory for names, had graciously mentioned it. You don't say anything, said the king to his daughter. Princess Amaril sighed. He is very handsome, father, she said, looking at high you. Yes, said the king, regarding Frederick, who was combing himself thoughtfully behind the left ear, with considerable doubt. But the real beauty of Prince Frederick's character does not lie upon the surface, or anyhow, er, not at the moment. No, father, sighed Amaril, and she looked at Hayu again. Now the swineherd, who, with instinctive good breeding, had taken the straw from his mouth on entering the palace, was a well-set-up young fellow, such as might please even a princess. For a little while there was silence in the royal library, until Frederick realized that it was his turn to speak. Humph, said Frederick. There, said the king, in great good humor, now, my dear, let me tell you what that means. That means that his royal highness is delighted to meet so beautiful and distinguished a princess. He turned to Hayu. Isn't that right, my man? Perfectly correct, your majesty. You see, my dear, said the king complacently, one soon picks it up. Now, in a few days, humph, said Frederick again. "'What did that one mean, father?' said Amaril. "'That meant, er, that meant, well, it's a little hard to put it colloquially, but roughly it means,' he made a gesture with his hand, "'that we have, er, been having very charming weather lately.' He frowned vigorously at the swineherd. "'Exactly, your majesty,' said Hayu. "'Charming weather for the time of year.' "'For the time of year, of course,' said the king hastily. "'One naturally assumes that. "'Well, my dear,' he went on to his daughter, "'I'm sure you will be glad to know that Prince Frederick has consented to stay with us for a little. "'You will give orders that suitable apartments are to be prepared.' "'Yes, father. What are suitable apartments?' The king pulled at his beard and regarded Frederick doubtfully. "'Perhaps it would be better,' the princess went on, looking at Hayu, "'if this gentleman—' "'Of course, my dear, of course. 
Naturally, his royal highness would wish to retain his suite. Humph, said Frederick, meaning, I imagine, that things were looking up. 3. Of all the princes who, from time to time, had visited the court, none endeared himself so rapidly to the people as did Frederick of Milvania. His complete lack of vanity, his thoughtfulness, the intense reserve which so obviously indicated a strong character, his power of listening placidly to even the most tedious of local dignitaries, all these were virtues of which previous royal visitors had given no sign. Moreover, on set occasions, Prince Frederick could make a very pretty speech. True, this was read for him, owing to a slight affection of the throat, from which, as the Chancellor pointed out, his royal highness was temporarily suffering, but it would be couched in the most perfect taste, and seasoned at suitable functions, such, for instance, as the opening of the first public baths, with a pleasantly restrained humour. Nor was there any doubt that the words were indeed the prince's own, as dictated to Hai-Yu, and by him put on paper for the Chancellor. But Hai-Yu himself never left the palace. "'My dear,' said the king to his daughter one day, "'have you ever thought of marriage?' "'Often, father,' said Amaril. "'I understand from the Chancellor that the people are expecting an announcement on the subject shortly.' "'We haven't got anything to announce, have we?' "'It's a pity that you were so hasty with your other suitors,' said the king thoughtfully. "'There is hardly a prince left who is in any way eligible.' "'Except Prince Frederick,' said Amaril gently.' The king looked at her suspiciously, and then looked away again, pulling at his beard. "'Of course,' went on Amaril, "'I don't know what your loving subjects would say about it.' "'My loving subjects,' said the king grimly, "'have been properly brought up. They believe, they have my authority for believing, that they are suffering from a disability of the eyesight laid upon them by a wicked enchanter.' under which they see princes as, er, pigs. That, if you remember, was this fellow Hai-Yu's suggestion, and a very sensible one. But do you want Frederick as a son-in-law? Well, that's the question. In his present shape, he is perhaps not quite, not quite, well, how shall I put it? Not quite, suggested Amaril. Exactly. At the same time, I think that there could be no harm in the announcement of a betrothal. The marriage, of course, would not be announced until... until the enchanter had removed his spell from the eyes of the people? Quite so. You have no objection to that, my dear? I am His Majesty's subject, said Amaril dutifully. That's a good girl. He patted the top of her head and dismissed her. So the betrothal of His Royal Highness Frederick of Melvania to the Princess Amaril was announced to the great joy of the people, and in the depths of the palace Hai-Yu, the swineherd, was hard at work, compounding a potion which, he assured the king, would restore Frederick to his own princely form. 
and sometimes the Princess Amarel would help him at his work. 4. A month went by, and then Hai Yu came to the king with news. He had compounded the magic potion. A few drops, sprinkled discriminately on Frederick, would restore him to his earlier shape, and the wedding could then be announced. "'Well, my man,' said His Majesty genially, "'this is indeed pleasant hearing. "'We will sprinkle Frederick to-morrow. "'Really, I am very much in your debt. "'Remind me, after the ceremony, "'to speak to the Lord Treasurer about the matter.' "'Say no more,' begged Hai Yu. "'All I ask is to be allowed to depart in peace. "'Let me have a few hours alone with His Royal Highness, "'in the form in which I have known him so long.' and then, when he is himself again, let me go. For it is not meet that I should remain here as a perpetual reminder to his royal highness of what he would fain forget. Well, that's very handsome of you, very handsome indeed. I see your point. Yes, it is better that you should go. But before you go, there is just one thing. The people are under the impression that, er... An enchanter has, er, well, you remember what you yourself suggested? I have thought of that, said Hai Yu, who seemed to have thought of everything, and I ventured to propose that your majesty should announce that a great alchemist has been compounding a potion to relieve their blindness. A few drops of this will be introduced into the water of the public baths, and all those bathing therein will be healed. A striking notion, said the king. Indeed, it was just about to occur to me. I will proclaim to-morrow a public holiday, and give orders that it be celebrated in the baths. Then, in the evening, when they are all clean, I should say cured, we will present their prince to them. So it happened, even as I you had said, and in the evening the prince, a model now of manly beauty, was presented to them, and they acclaimed him with cheers. And all noticed how lovingly the princess regarded him, and how he smiled upon her. But the king gazed upon the prince as one fascinated. Seven times he cleared his throat, and seven times he failed to speak. And the eighth time he said, your face is strangely familiar to me. Perchance we met in Melvania, said the prince pleasantly. Now the king had never been in Melvania, wherefore he still gazed at the prince, and at length he said, What has happened to that high you fellow? You will never hear of him again, said the prince pleasantly. Oh, said the king, and after that they feasted and some say that they feasted upon roast pig, but I say not, and some say that Hai Yu had planned it all from the beginning, but I say not, and some say that it was the Princess Amaril who planned it from the day when first she saw Hai Yu, and with them I agree, for indeed I am very sure that when Hai Yu was a swineherd upon the hills, he believed truly that the little black pig with the curly tail was a prince, and, though events in the end were too much for him, 
I like to think that Hai-Yu remained loyal to his friend, and that his plush-lined sty, in a quiet corner of the palace grounds, Frederick passed a gentle old age, cheered from time to time by the visits of Amaril's children. End of section 9 Recorded by Kirsten Weber And end of The Sunnyside by A. A. Milne